if if you'll indulge me briefly, I I uh, uh, I'd like to do the uh, old-fashioned Japanese chant to introduce the talk. Uh, this is a pure indulgence on my part, so if you can stand it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I am uh, unwell tonight. Uh, as uh, some of you know, I am um, uh, a migraineur, that is, I suffer from migraine. And this evening, um, in all innocence, I thought around four o'clock, I thought, oh, I'll just lie down for a minute and close my eyes. Next thing I knew, it was six o'clock and bad things were happening. <laughs> I should not have risked that, but I had no idea that I would conk out like that. And doing so is sometimes an invitation to trouble. So I, I, um, I think maybe we won't have such a long talk tonight, and I'm sorry. I invite you to uh, rescind my dana because <laughs> I don't think I will have earned it. Uh, for some reason, while I was sitting here, uh, it's it's uh, of course evening, both in San Francisco and in. Sacramento and uh, um, my uh, somewhat afflicted consciousness came up with a um, probably well fifth century Sanskrit poem. Uh, which is one of the beloved such poems in in India, and this one in particular is evocative of evening, and uh, is actually from a play, a Sanskrit play. So. For no good reason, if you don't mind, I'd like to recite that poem also. Kaga vaso peta salilam avagadho munijana 
Radito gnir bhati pravicharati dhumo munivanam. Pari prashtor ravirapicha sanchitta kirano. Ratam yavartya sao pravicharati sanair astashikaram. Try to translate. Um, the birds have gone to their nests. The kindled evening fire gleams as the munis, the ascetics, enter the water for the evening bath. Uh, from afar, the sun gathering together his rays and turning around his chariot slowly enters the western peaks. Uh, you heard it here. One of my uh, teachers in, at university was a pundit from Kerala state and a speaker of Kannada, which is one of the Dravidian tongues. Uh, but many of the South Indian pundits, even though most of them did not grow up speaking Sanskrit, but the Dravidian languages were renowned for the purity of their pronunciation. So I had a, I had uh, some very good teachers, and among them, uh, Dr. Bhatta. And um, uh, uh, he once uh, told our class. When Dennis is chanting, Dennis being me, he said, uh, if I close my eyes, I feel like I'm in India. So I, uh, I don't know where Dr. Bhatta is today, but I thank him. I also want to thank uh, Barbara for her marvelous labors. Uh, one, a single stitch in Buddha's robe confers incalculable merit. So uh, just imagine <laughs> the, the merit accrued to Barbara and the whole Sangha from all of the stitches that have been sewed in Buddha's robe. Thank you so much.
one of the uh, ways I um, amuse myself uh, is I indulge my lifelong interest in what we might as well call religion. I don't know how that started, but I can't remember a time when I was not fascinated by the human expression of uh, that, I don't know what to call it, capacity. which I think is tends to be largely misunderstood in the modern West. So there are a number of um, commentators on religious subjects, as you might imagine, uh, on YouTube and other venues, and um, recently I noticed that it is it is uh, uh, common nowadays among seemingly uh, uh, Protestant. Christians to speak of what they call a their faith commitment. I don't know if you've heard that expression before, but this was relatively new to me. When I uh, arrived at um, UC Berkeley to begin my studies there in 1971, I started off and spent, I don't, I'm not sure, a couple of quarters maybe as a religious studies student. And only later devoted myself to the study of Sanskrit. But I don't remember hearing this expression, faith commitment, back then. But we can see that um, for many people, it involves a kind of a political commitment. So, uh, there is a kind of uh, militancy of belief there, which I I don't associate with the Buddha way as I have encountered it. I don't think we have, as I understand it, a faith commitment per se. But for many people, uh, 
it also involves uh, membership in one or another group of, of co-religionists. And for them, it's quite important that a certain, I don't know, boxes must be checked at all times if their faith commitment is to retain its uh, vigor. But as I say, I don't think we have that. So what do we have? Well, we have a, a body of practice. We have a collection of I guess we can call them sacred texts, if we like, which express a certain view of reality. And that is their, their primary function. Shakyamuni Buddha's great impact upon humanity was his proclamation of a startling view of reality. Uh, which up to his time had uh, not been proclaimed before. And of course, Shakyamuni was speaking from his experience. So his proclaiming his discovery was not a matter of a faith commitment. And um, uh, Shakyamuni's discovery uh, he he invited uh, anyone who was interested uh, to duplicate to make their own discovery. Will you excuse me just a moment, please?
Sorry. Uh, one um, aspect of our embodying Buddha's way uh, is that we do not um, I have to say we do not make our um, own discovery of the accuracy of Shakyamuni's vision as something we put out there in the future. As the time goes on and our practice continues, we discover moment after moment that Shakyamuni was speaking the truth about how we are, who we are. So we don't wait for revelation. Instead, we encounter again and again the revelatory power of this body-mind, just as it is. And guided by Shakyamuni's insight we are able to see as he did that just this person expresses the profound truth of Buddha's insight, namely, there's someone here, but it's not who we thought. And if we as is the case with sentient beings, if we mistake the nature of the the five aggregates of grasping, as they're called, 
then suffering is in store. And what are they? They are material, sensation, conceptualization, impulsive consciousness, and what we might call background consciousness. And of course, Shakyamuni invited us all to find something else there, if we like, if we think we can. Find something besides these acquisitive energies. The pancha upadana skantas, the five aggregates of acquisition. Besides them, is there somebody else? So far, I think no one has found that somebody else. And it's not a uh, faith commitment, but rather a discovery. that there isn't somebody else there. So you could say this distinguishes the Buddha way from some other traditions of spiritual insight, let's say. And maybe this is an aspect that, for some of us anyway, was, has been and continues to be so compelling. This way, our commitment is not to a body of received truths, but to a clear perception of reality. And that implies, I would say, in a peculiar way, our commitment is also to one another.
as uh, fellow pilgrims on this way of true seeing. And here in the West, uh, you may have encountered folks who would be happy if you would uh, set aside the way of true seeing and join them in their faith commitment. And become a, you know, a Baptist or Methodist or Catholic or something. If we were to do that, of course, Shakyamuni would not mind. Buddha might just say, well, that's fine, but just remember, keep your eyes open. Try to see what's actually there. Personally, I think that's more or less what all the great spiritual teachers had in mind, although they expressed themselves differently. One of my roommates in boarding school came from a uh, wealthy Southern California family of ardent uh, conservative sentiments. And he brought with him a uh, some comic books which featured a heroic figure named General Powers. And General Powers had a military uniform with lots of decorations. And General Powers was always excoriating what he called the wild-eyed one-worlders. And... <laughs> When Michael was my roommate, I told him, you know, I'm afraid 
I have to say, I'm your roommate, but I am definitely a wild-eyed one-worlder, so sorry. And that was a long time ago. And that has not changed much. So, though that's so, I, I don't feel like I have a faith commitment to being a wild-eyed one-worlder. That's just how it turned out. Um, maybe I could uh, stop talking now and see if... Um, Uh, some of you all might like to comment or ask a question. I realize that wasn't a very long talk, so please uh, rescind my Donna. <laughs> it's it's okay. I can still buy groceries. Uh, it's it's uh, Reverend So on here, Mio. Um, so how does uh, how does uh, the vision of Avalokiteshvara fit in that the five acquisitive aggregates are seen as empty? You're asking, how does it fit in? Yes, uh, yes. Well, when you, when you, I don't know, when you were talking about Shakyamuni Buddha's um, uh, sort of startling new vision. Uh huh. Was was that what you were talking about? Yes, undoubtedly. <laughs> okay. So those those skandhas, those aggregates, uh, are pure process and lack own being. Or, which means, oh. or they lack svabhava, to use the Sanskrit term. They can't exist from their own side. So, early on, there may have been some tendency. Uh, for people to reify aspects of 
Shakyamuni's insight. But uh, behind his discovery was the discovery that the aggregates of grasping reveal that the person has no own being. The person cannot stand apart from everything else in the universe. But merely co-arises with everything else in the universe. And that's a crucial difference. And as we say, that's what Avalokiteshvara discovered, engaged in the the uh, the Gambhira practice, the deep practice of perfect wisdom that sees things as they are. The aggregates of grasping are all svabhava shunya, that is, vacant with respect to own being. And thus unfolded the path of the end of suffering. Or maybe I should say, unfolds the path of the end of suffering. Thank you. Uh, any other? Here's a question from Dunya. Hi, I wanted to return to the faith commitment idea and you know, I was thinking while you spoke, I mean, in Buddhism, we still have a commitment to something. And kind of wondering what exactly that is. And I was thinking, you know, when I started out like 17 years ago, I guess I even had to have a faith commitment that this method was going possibly to work. <laughs> You know, people told me, if you keep coming here and sitting, 
you might see something. And it seemed very strange and implausible, but I had to take a leap of faith to believe that if I kept doing this, and, you know, sometimes even these days, like if my mind seems all over the place, I have to have a faith that if I just keep coming back to the cushion every day, um, in the end, you know, a path unfolds. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a faith commitment of sorts, but maybe more to a process mm. than to a dogma. Well, that's how it looks to me, I must say. The Another way to say it is, of course, maybe it's a little misleading to say, oh, well, maybe one day we'll see something because Shakyamuni's teaching was and is about what we are seeing right now. And this is what sustains our practice day after day, month after month, year after year. Not so much, well, I'll have a a cool vision someday. It's like, what am I seeing right now? And is there something about what I'm seeing right now that contradicts Shakyamuni's insight? If so, what is that? Where is that? So you could say there's a kind of a commitment to a certain insistence on clarity of vision. What am I seeing right now? This is the heart of Zazen. Does that speak to your point of view? Yeah, very much. At the first, though, for me at least, when I would sit, you know, when I came to this in my 20s, I mostly just wanted to jump out of my skin. (laughs) I didn't feel like I was even seeing anything, you know. It just was an overwhelming torrent of painful stuff. So it took a certain faith that there is some process of things settling down. Because the very first time, you can't even be sure that's true. (laughs) It's like you decide to trust these people, Mm -hmm. that your mind is not always going to be this like crazy mess. Mm. Um, And then sometimes it goes back to being a crazy mess, and you have to trust that, you know, you just keep at it. So, yes. Well, eventually, or I don't know, maybe not eventually, maybe right away, the the crazy mess is revealed to be, <laughs> I don't know what, quiescent at heart. The crazy mess isn't even a crazy mess. 
that's a remarkable point of view. And yet we're encouraged to, um, well, maybe it's a, maybe it's a faith commitment of sorts to think that there's the, the old saying, the Buddhas and ancestors have not deceived me. There's this old, old saying, especially I think in Chan and Zen. And it's true, they didn't, they haven't, they won't. Good evening, Reverend Mio. It's Larry. Good evening, Maestro. Um, when when I uh, after being a um, literary practitioner in my late teens, early twenties, I then left practice for you know forty years, and five years or so ago, I I came back, and I think the first book I read was uh, Zen Mind Beginner's Mind and um, I didn't I didn't I didn't read it I listened to Peter Coyote uttering it Mm. Um, and I had no idea what was going on and but there were five words that I thought might be helpful and I said all right let me just I can go with these five words from the book and those words were sit in sincerity and faith so um, I don't. I suppose what that meant, you know, and of course the operative word we're talking about this evening is the fifth word of that utterance. And I think I just took it to mean um, stay positive and just sit. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, like Dunya was saying, there is there is some faith, but faith of what I'm, I'm not exactly sure i guess faith in sitting uh, you know could you comment well uh for a, a long while now in our context uh, to me faith has meant trust that's all yeah. thank you Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Mio. I have grew up in that tradition, the Lutheran Church of Mournful Praise, I like to talk about, with faith being central. The beauty of Buddhism seems to me to be that faith is secondary to vow and vow comes out of that clarity of vision a vow to and suffering for self and others and faith is something very ancillary to that faith in the view the clarity of the view vow being the primary Mm-hmm. 
Thank you. The uh, the magic of the vow, of course, is that it it um, it uh, eludes. Uh, individual purpose and plan and so forth. So when we say vow, it's not just uh, something that I am doing. I'm aligning body and mind with something immense. So vow is not just my vow. It's the vow of all Buddhas and ancestors from beginningless time into endless future. That's what makes it so powerful. Thank you, Reverend Mio. It's Oscar. Um, it's been a, le- a long evening, and um, um, I guess I just want to say um, I have a question, but I would also like to say uh, it's maybe it's okay to stop. Uh, so maybe a, a brief question. Um, I, I've never heard this nomenclature for the skandhas before, and I've never heard them labeled as the grasping skandhas. So this is an interesting sidelight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in particular, uh, I'm struck by um, this, these new words, these new terms, uh, impulsive consciousness and background consciousness mm-hmm. for, uh, for forma- what I've usually heard is formation and consciousness. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess uh, I'm guessing, uh, uh, and, and it's kind of an interesting sidelight. Uh, it sounds like uh, impulsive consciousness is maybe uh, another word or similar to the concept of, of uh, karmic consciousness. I'm guessing. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's consciousness with a emotional vector that is a direction, an energy, and a a karmic result, you might say. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, it does. Uh, and uh, let me follow up. So that emotional vector is a karmic phenomena. Yes. Karma consequence. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then could you say a word or two about background consciousness? Well, uh, there is an awareness that supports all of this. So, so, although it's it has its um, status as its own skanda, 
its function is to support and illuminate all of these phenomena, all of the phenomena of the pancha, upadana, skandhas. That's what it does. Thank you. Um, and one brief um, ap academic question. Um, uh, our practice is, is largely shikantaza. Um, largely? <laughs> well, that's my question. Sometimes, uh, um, but I've heard, I've heard the teaching that uh, in men Zen meditation, one can practice um, shamatha and vipassana. And uh, Vipassana is, is not entirely, in my understanding, um, you know, there's some focus to it. Uh, it's directed at a particular teaching. Um, so is that, um, is that, to be technical, is that uh, shikantaza, if one is kind of... Uh, um, considering um, uh, um, the teachings? Well, what uh, we call uh, vipassana or vipassana in Pali is a, um, how to say, it's a, a particular way of framing the experience of the body-mind in the process of investigating what this is. So, uh, there is no way that our practice of just sitting could be separate from the process or the dynamic of settling and then the insight that springs from settling. And the effect of the insight is tends to be unsettling. Therefore, we return to settling. And from that, insight springs. So, more settling, more settling, more insight, and so forth, on and on. That's the dynamic. And that's uh, equally represented in what we call just sitting, although it tends to set aside the rather elaborate menu that can come attached to the process of shamatha and vipassana. In Chan and Zen, we would say, it's, it's a nice uh, decoration but it's not particularly necessary. Thank you so much. 
I apologize for going on so long. That's okay. But somehow it is it almost it's almost nine o'clock. I don't know how that happened. I uh, I thought I would be dead by now, but it hasn't, it hasn't happened. So <laughs> unless there's uh, maybe another urgent spiritual inquiry, maybe we can stop now. Maybe I'll, if you can stand it, I'll indulge in a little more of the old, old language.